Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips, and I've got a good show for you today. Training camps are opening around the NFL this week, so we're going to get ready for the preseason by taking a quick look back at the offseason for the Jets and Giants. That begins today when I'm joined by Joe Arquino, who has covered the Giants for ESPN Albany. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the show when I offer my thoughts on Darrell Rios' legacy with a future Hall of Famer officially retiring as a member of the Jets this week. We get all rolling with this week's opening tip, where I have my take on the Mets' disastrous weekend right after this. Y'all ready for this? Welcome back to today's opening tip. Everybody knows that the Mets had a terrible weekend and it had nothing to do with their performance on the field. The Mets actually split two games in their Subway Series against the Yankees this weekend. The third got rained out, so on the field, not a bad weekend. Off the weekend, really, really bad. Before we get into it, let's go back to the beginning of June when the Mets were a 500 team. At that point, then-GM Sandy Olsen said that they had seen a silver lining in the team's play because they got 8-8 eight eight over the last 16 games. And Mickey Callaway said, there's nowhere to go it up. They had they had already hit rock bottom. I wrote an article at the time from Mestradamus where I was like, where is rock bottom for this team right after they got swept by the Cubs? The Mets have done nothing but lose since, and the bar for the rock bottom keeps going lower and lower and lower and lower. This weekend just takes the cake in terms of how bad things have been around the Mets. Friday is supposed to be a good thing for the Mets. They win. Yohannes Cespedes comes back on the D after missing forever with a, ham- with a variety of injuries. Even hits a home run. After the game, Cespedes goes out, calls reporters, and says he's going to need surgery on both heels eventually because of calcification in them. And that procedure was signed him for 8 to 10 months. So, of course, once this happens, Mets Twitter goes into a panic the entire fandom just starts flipping out. So everybody's sitting there anxiously waiting the next day to hear from the team to see what they think about it. Next day, Mickey Callaway comes out before the game. You know how much I love Mickey. You just know how much I love how how many crazy things he says. He comes out before the game and says he had no idea what Sasquatch talked about and he hadn't seen what he said. Wait, really? You're a manager of a baseball team in New York City. How do you have no idea what your best player said to the press after the game? The fact that Mickey actually went in there with a straight face and told the press he had no idea what was going on tells you one of two things. One, Mickey lied to the media, which is not, which you can't rule that out. He might have been coaching above not to say anything. The other option is that Mickey really did have no idea what was going on, either failing to talk to Cespedes about it or not being told by the front office. Neither possibility is a good look for the franchise. And then on top of that, we have the whole situation with Jerry's Familia. Familia isn't, doesn't get used Friday night because he figured he's getting traded to the Oakland A's. That rumor's coming out during the game. He doesn't pitch in a safe situation. that goes to Gaselman. He's seen hugging Blevins after the game. You figure, okay, he's gone. The trade's not done the next day. And then a report leaks out from Christy Acker of the New York Daily News where she says that the Mets and the Oakland A's are haggling over money. Keep in mind, Familia makes just over $3 million for the rest of the season. The Mets made Oakland kick in that $3 million salary and got back two nondescript minor leaguers and a million bucks international bonus pool money. Now, don't get me wrong. The bonus pool money is great. Omar I has shown the ability to find this kind of untapped talent in the international free agent waters over the years, and giving him that money will be a good thing for the team. But the fact that they couldn't give in $3 million to the A's these same A's had a movie made about them 
in which the whole point was how they find talent without spending money. They gave the Mets $3 million to avoid giving up better prospects. This came just a day after John Rico said the Mets would be willing to pay money to get better prospects. That appears to be a lie. Here's the exact quote from Tim Britton of The Athletic about what Rico said. Rico said, and I quote, We're looking to maximize value coming back. We have the ability to carry some of the money in order to increase the return. It doesn't mean we're going to do that. We're still going to look at the totality of the deal. If moving the money plus the talent is better than what we're going to get for eating the money, you might see us do deals where we move all the money. In their first attempt this year, this is after last year when Sandy said the same thing and said the dump salary left and right for minor league relievers, the Mets dumped the money again. Now, say what you want about about Familia. He was erratic at points. He had games where he could just walk the ballpark. He struggled in the playoffs, especially in the World Series and the wildcard game. But the dude saved 117 games to start 2015. That's tied for third in the league behind Kenley Jansen and Craig Kimbrell. The Mets should have been able to do a lot better than just two nondescript prospects and international bonus money. This franchise is worth $2.1 billion, according to Forbes. The Mets refused to pay $3 million to get better prospects back from Oakland. That's just asinine. Familia's salary is the equivalent of 0.14% of the franchise's net worth. The Mets traded their, their all-star closer for pocket change and two fringe prospects. And we know that the return is bad. ESPN Keith Law ripped them, and Law knows his prospects. Law scribe Bobby Wall, the reliever they got back, is a hard thrower without much secondary stuff and below average commander control. Sounds like he'll fit right in with the rest of the Mets bullpen. Third baseman Will Toffey is a solid defensive third baseman with below average hit and power tools, according to Law. That also sounds great. A, defen- a defensive third baseman who has a below average bat also will fit right in on the Met bench. That's bad enough, this deal. The thing that makes it worse is that no one came out to a talk about this deal on Saturday. Not None of the three GMs, like Omar was nowhere to be found, J.P. Ricciardi, who supposedly made the deal, was nowhere to be found, and John Rico was not available because they had a prior engagement. So the organization sent out a press release to discuss the biggest trade of the season so far. In the press release, they basically said the most important aspect of the deal was the bonus money. So in other words, the future of the franchise is going to come down to Omar Minaya's ability to find the right 16-year-olds in the international free agent market. That's not going to cut it for a New York franchise. Now, Rico finally showed up on Sunday. He claimed there was no disconnect between Cessus and the Mets. How is this possible? On one hand, Cessus is in, in the locker room telling reporters, I need heel surgery. I might be out eight to 10 months. And the next day, the manager is saying, oh, he's going to be reevaluated tomorrow. We're going to proceed with him and just manage him and just manage his games and his reps and see how he goes. That is the definition of a disconnect. All these things happening, and then Rico decides to drop in. Oh, by the way, Noah Syndergaard's going on a DL with hand, foot, and mouth disease. I mean, you can't make this up. Now, the common denominator for the franchise that likes to put fun in dysfunction is the front office ownership, specifically the Wilt Ponds. Over the last couple of days, we had some articles coming out, finally pointing out the obvious that Met fans have known for years. The Wilt Ponds are the constant in the equation that has always led to just dysfunction and disgrace and a complete disaster. Here's with Tim Britton. Tim Britton, the athletic, again, he's one of the few who's actually said things about the, about the ownership situation. You know, in his article about the weekend's disaster, the Cespedes situation is playing out very similarly to what happened with Carlos Beltran in 2009. Beltran got a bone bruise in his knee late that year. That turned, ended up turning into arthroscopic knee surgery late in the winter. That cost him most of 2010. Now, the manager then was Jerry Manuel. Omar was the GM. 
the old medical staff's in place. You have some different people in the PR department. The constants were Fred and Jeff Wilpon. And then there was an article today from Jeff Possen from Yahoo who dropped another damning piece about the Wilpons. Let me read you his first couple of paragraphs. This says a lot. The New York Mets, a public relations disaster that has spare time masquerades as a baseball team, spent the days following the All-Star break finding new depths of dysfunction, which is saying something considering the team's ownership profited from the largest Ponzi scheme in human history. It's important to start there with owner Fred Wilpon and his son and team COO, Jeff, because rottenness of this sort does not grow randomly, a bizarre series of one-offs that happens to befall the same organization ad infinitum. It emanates from the same wound, one that foster, festers and hab- habitually infects, excuse me. One rooted in insecurity that explains so many of the Mets' foibles. Multiple people familiar with the Mets' inner workings describe an organizational culture that is almost too childish to believe. One in which Jeff Wilpon sees a winning day only is one in which the Mets are victorious and the New York Yankees lose. This is not just little brother syndrome. It's mania in which a franchise's fealty to public perception drives so many of his decisions. A sad bit of irony considering Mets fans so deeply loathe the team's ownership. I mean, that says it all right there. The Mets are being run like children. Can you imagine if the Yankees made a trade and Brian Cashin didn't talk about it the next day? That doesn't happen. He's available to talk. So are their owners. The Met ownership group is nowhere found. I'll read you another interesting point from that article from, from Passan. One rival GM told him, I really wonder if we could get DeGrom right now because they're so vulnerable and want the PR if they would get for starting to rebuild. That's right. Other teams in baseball are starting to think of ways they could take advantage of the Mets because their desire to be, ple- to be uh, seen in a positive light by their fans. That's just ridiculous. This is a big league, big market team. They care more about their image than doing the right thing for, for by the players or the fans. Another executive told him, it's like, hey, the Yankees got Torres at the deadline. Maybe the Mets can do that too. I don't think John or JP or Omar would do it, but when three guys are running things, maybe ownership is the real decision maker. And that is the problem. Ownership decides this. Right now, it is pretty clear that Jeff is running the team. Not John, not JP, not Omar, Jeff. This three-ring circus the Mets have over the weekend is on Jeff's lap. Jeff did not come out and address the trade. Jeff did not make anyone available to come out and discuss the trade. Jeff did not make sure that the, that the manager and the, and the player were on the same page regarding Cessna's situation. Until this changes... The Mets are going to be going through cycle after cycle after cycle of dysfunction, and when fans are going to be set there frustrated, wondering what they can do to change it. Until ownership actually demonstrates a commitment to trying to run a proper professional franchise, things like this weekend are going to keep happening, and rock bottoms will keep going lower and lower and lower. All right, now I got that off my chest. We're going to shift gears to football in just a minute. We're going to look at the Giants with ESPN Albany's Joey Artino right after this. All right, it's time to talk some football. The New York Giants had a rough year in 2017, going just 3-13 and after a playoff run in the previous season, which led the widespread changes ahead of the 2018 campaign. Here in the studio with me to help break down all the changes to the GMN is Jersey Joe Arquino, who covered the Giants for ESPN Albany. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Really glad to be here. Okay, two things before we start. One, how did you get the nickname Jersey Joe? Very good question. Definitely one of the most frequent ones, and what most people think is obviously you're from New Jersey, not the case. I'm not from New Jersey, but uh, growing up, I collected, I still do collect sports jerseys. And I basically went through seventh grade to my senior year of high school without wearing anything but a jersey to school every single day. So it'd be whether it's baseball, football, basketball, you name it. That's where the nickname came from. So no, no New Jersey. 
Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad to have no New Jersey reference no. there. <laughs> no disrespect to New Jersey, though. All right, tell me a little bit what you do for the Giants for ESPN Albany. So that season, I was basically the eyes and ears for the team for them there. I would go to every home game, and I, I, I had my spot in the press box, um, and I'd report on everything for them. You know, The main mission for them, obviously, because they're in Albany, so it's not easy for them to get down here. Um, so for me, that was my main job, was get in the locker room, get the post-game sound for them. I would do a, a post-game at the end, a post-game wrap-up at the end of it on the field and film that, um, and then that'd be put up on the ESPN Radio Albany homepage. But at the end of the day, the, my biggest job was go in the locker room, listen, see if I saw anything, um, and try to get as much sound as I could. And then the day after, they'd bring me on the show, and I'd wrap up what I saw. I mean, because I think that really is the thing. You can listen to athletes talk but if you can be in the locker room and really watch these guys after the game you can pick up on so much personality wise you know emotion wise it's a crazy place to be after a game oh I can imagine I mean I can imagine what it was like last year when the, the thing just went fell apart because they can enter with preseason enter with playoff expectations and then everything falls apart they have the bad start Ben McAdoo makes a bad choice to start Geno and break the Elon Manning streak. He gets fired. Jerry Reese is gone. Now they have a new regime in place. Dave Gelman is the GM. Pat Shermer is the new head coach. I think it changes their impact the Giants in the next few years. Well, you know, and I do want to uh, uh, make kind of before I go into this say I did only cover the team for the one season. It was Tom Coughlin's last year, so I wasn't always uh, in the in the same capacity uh, the last two seasons with Ben McAdoo. But still. Um, I think obviously when you look at the team now, it, when you look at what happened last season, it was clear that they kind of needed new leadership there. I think that that's what a lot of people are looking forward to now is kind of a it's a fresh start. I think no matter what happened last year, it's all in the past now. You got to turn a page and look, and I think that's really the approach that we've seen from Shermer and we've seen from Gettleman, um, because there is still a lot of important pieces on this team, veteran guys on this team, and I think. With new, the new change there, I think that really is what it's going to come down to is we just got to put the past behind us and just blaze our, our own trail now. Okay. I know we want to, you say we want to put the past behind us, but one more past question. Going back to the draft, they were sitting there at two. They yes. had a chance to draft a successor, Eli Manning. They chose not to do that, took Saquon Barkley instead. Do you agree with their decision? Do you think that there's something they could regret in two years, like if they have not won the Super Bowl and Eli retires? I'll tell you what. During the draft... I wasn't sure because I wasn't crazy on all the quarterbacks, but of all of them, Barkley was the one that really would have enticed me if he was there. And of course, as we've seen, he was there at that point. But then when time passed a little bit, I thought, you know, this it was the right decision they made. And I think one thing that really doesn't get talked about a lot that a lot of people have, I've talked to uh, who've been around the organization things say, the team really likes Davis Webb. Now, obviously, we haven't really seen a ton of him, but I think the fact that they didn't bite and take Barkley shows you, and from the people you, I've you talked to— You mean Darnold, not Barkley. They, 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 you said that they, took Bar, they didn't take Barkley. They took, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I think a lot of people really like Webb, and I think that might be part of the reason for it. And the Giants, let, let's look, historically— When's the last time they really have had a really good running back? They have not had one in a long time. I mean, even the year we saw them win both Super Bowls with Coughlin, they had a very consistent running game then. And I think they really want to go back to that formula. And look, we've seen how 
one running back can change your fortunes. Look at what Ezekiel Elliott did for the Cowboys his rookie season. Look at what Todd Gurley has done for the Rams. You get that that back, and you have other competent pieces around him, you could go very far in this league. And I know it's a league now where we don't always want to put a ton of stock into the running back position, but it still is a very important spot. And I think from what we've seen out of Barkley, his conditioning, his strength, I think he's going to have a heck of a heck of a year for them. Yeah, I know you brought up Ezekiel Elliott and Tiger. One of the big things that helped those guys, the fact that those teams made big investments in the offensive line. Yes. The Giants finally started to do that this winter. They, they signed Nate Solar to play left tackle. They draft Will Hernandez in the, out of UTEP the second round. I think those changes are going to A, help Eli stay upright, and B, help the unit as a whole become better. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that, that's been another issue that has really hindered them from success. And when you don't have a great offensive line and you don't have a great running backs on top of it, those things are going to put a lot of extra pressure on your quarterback. And I think obviously we've seen Eli, and he hasn't been at his best the last few seasons. But now that you're trying to stabilize the offensive line you've got you're bringing in a young set of legs in Barkley and you've got a lot to be excited about and it kind of always takes me back to Philip Rivers and we know Philip Rivers and Eli Manning I think athletic wise they're kind of similar um, and we saw Philip Rivers really for a long time really struggling to stay upright because the Chargers just could not get a good offensive line to protect him and I think when we saw once they started to stabilize it again Philip Rivers started to come back into his own again and I do think even though Eli is aging again you still will see he was able to to have those great glimpses again with you when you have that solidified offensive line once again yeah I know the last guy on the offense we're going to address is the big guy Odell Beckham there was concerns about the ankle injury whether I was gonna hold out he did not hold out he showed up to camp today how do you think he's going to play this year, knowing that he's in a contract year? Well, you you hit the, you hit said it so well again. This is a huge season for him. I mean, he has to, and he's, he obviously he's going to want to do everything in his power. And I, think, I don't think it's a question of are his numbers going to be good? Is he going to be good on the field? I, I never have any concerns about his production on the field. What I always want to see from him is you've got to be composed. I think at the end of the day, if he can show that he's matured, he's taking those steps to become more of a leader and really become more of a composed player, I think those are the only questions at this point that people are still worried about. We've seen the amazing catches. We've seen the amazing route running. We've seen his speed. But the thing I think we all still want to see is how composed can you be? Can you continue to mature? If he shows that, I think he's going to earn himself a big payday. Now, you said you cover the team in the locker room that one year with Coughlin, and obviously Beckham was there. Do you have any like insight on like what you've seen like from Beckham while you were there? Well, you know, I defended him because after the Josh Norman game, the Carolina Panthers game, I'm yeah. sure you and yeah, you a lot that. of people remember, it, it, crazy game. I mean, Norman him going at it, uh, it ejections. I mean, it, was, it really was an insane game. But I, I came to his defense because I always felt that he was always very approachable and acceptable, you know, always gave the media time, always was willing to stay and answer questions. Um, and, and I thought that he was a little bit unfairly attacked at that point. Now, obviously, we've seen since then more incidents and stuff. So and he does need to mature a little bit. But I think that he just is such a passionate player at times that sometimes that, that kind of blocks some stuff. But I, I think this is such a big season for him. And that was probably one of the craziest moments that I could remember from that season covering the team. It really was. 
Yeah, no, that would he just brings he's just a lightning rod. He gets all the attention on him yes. for some reason, and I don't know if it helps the other guys or if it just like takes the pressure off of them just to have him there absor- absorbing all the media pressure. But I feel like he's just this big like attention spot for the offense, and obviously it helps on the field because you have corners being focused on him and not being able to like. And he's getting he's drawing doubles, not allowing these other guys to get open. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's go to the defensive side of the ball because one thing I've always noticed my Giant fan friends always complain about is the fact that for years this team does not do enough to address the linebacker position. They finally do something this offseason. They trade with the Rams. They get Alec Ogletree. How do you think he's going to help the unit? Well, look, I think your fans are right to say that because historically the New York Giants, they when, they're, when their defenses have been at their best, they've had very identifiable linebackers. I think, I think when you look at the teams that have really won and consistently won for the New York Giants, They've always had a guys in the middle of the defense where you could really count on them. And I just think when they've struggled at times, we've seen there's been a lack there. I think Ogletree obviously is a tremendous player, what, we, what we've seen him do with that Rams defense. I think the Giants and Gettleman especially looked at the team and said, all right, I know this team. I know historically what the Giants need. They need players who are identifiable in this position, guys you can count on. And I think that's what he addressed when he brought him in. All right, another area of concern for this team is a secondary because obviously you have the weird situation going with Janoris Jenkins and the dead body in his house, and now his brother is a suspect, and we don't know if he actually knew anything or not. Eli Apple had a bad year. The kid they took in supplemental draft is out for the year. How concerned would you be if you're the Giants about the corner position? Look, I mean, I think you just... If you if all the things you just said don't make you concerned, I don't know what would be. There there certainly is things that you have to worry about there, um, and I think certainly from last season... He, that was definitely one of the weakest spots on the whole team for sure. Um, but but I think obviously, again, you look at what they're going to do this season, there's going to be a lot of changes all over the field. Um, but I think, you know, right now, I honestly don't even know what to say because it is a struggle and they're going to just have to find guys to plug in and step up. I think that's one of the, the mentalities that's going to be on this team is, you know, we're turning a new page, but show us. Show us that you're ready, you're locked in, and that you're ready to embrace the change. Yeah, and one, and they got to embrace that change quickly because they have a very tough schedule early on. It, it <laughs> is brutal. Yeah, their first seven games are Jacksonville, who was in the AFC Championship game, at the Cowboys, which is never fun, at the Texans with Deshaun Watson, the Saints coming in, NFC South champions, at Carolina, home, hosting the Super Bowl champion Eagles, and at the Falcons. Do you think they survived that brutal stretch and that that brutal stretch, excuse me, and be in position to make the playoffs the second half of the year? You know, I think in this league, you never say that nothing is impossible. We've just seen in the NFL every season you could make a remarkable turnaround. I think that's one of the reasons people love the NFL so much is because season to season you always feel like your team has a chance. It just it doesn't matter what team you're a fan of. You always feel like because things change so dramatically in this league, you can't predict certain things in this league. You can't predict injuries. You can't predict some things. It's one season, a guy plays really well. The next season, something just doesn't click again. So I think whenever when you look at it on its face, it really is a daunting challenge, and I think there is no question that it will be. But I just think when a lot of these things still, there are still a lot of question marks on certain points here. So I'm looking at it from an optimistic standpoint. I do think that it's going to be a battle, but I think they're going to find their moments here and there. I think they're going to get through it okay. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if they just go 3-4 and four over the seven games, they could probably yes. still get to 10 and get in the playoffs the way their second half lines up. You know, I, I still think, 
obviously the Eagles are going to be the team to beat in that division. There's no question about it. They are just loaded with talent. I mean, Wentz is as good as they come. Um, but I think the Cowboys are still a team that we're not sure about. I still think there's a lot of question marks there. Washington, there's a lot of question marks there too. Um, so Philly's going to be tough, no question about it. But I think that they can make up some room on some of the other teams in the division. Yeah, I know Philly has won the Super Bowl. They're getting Wentz bad. They're going to be a big threat. I think the team they're basically competing with the playoffs about for is Dallas. And Dallas is let Des Bryant go. They kind of reshaped the offense a little bit. They brought in some new receivers. They're trying to, Rich also is trying to reek the defense for about the 15th time in a row. So we think, what do you think it comes down to in separating the Giants and Dallas in the division? That's, you know, that's a very good question. I think it's going to be the running backs on both teams. I'm still, I don't know about you. What, are you a Dak Prescott guy? I mean, the thing with Dak is I feel like he's in a place where he needs the support system around him to win, whereas like he needs like good players around him. I don't think he can carry the team by himself. And to, I, to you win. know, that's the way I feel about him, too. And that's why I think for him, Elliott is so huge. And I think Barkley, obviously, I, I think the Giants, what it's going to come down to on offense is if he can be as good as I think we, we've seen him train and as good as we project him to be, I think it's going to be a monster pressure because it, Eli Manning, I'm going to take him over Dak Prescott. That's just the way it is. If he gets some the, that offensive line playing better and he's able to rely on his young running back, there's no question to me which quarterback has had more experience, which quarterback has won a, a more high-profile games. I think if it comes down to that, there's no question. I think that's going to be the big difference maker there. All right, I know you got to run, but for, before you go, can you let everybody know how to find on social media and some of the other stuff you've been up to? Yeah, of course. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Archino. Again, it, I always like to go back and look at that season. I'm a big Tom Coughlin fan. I just I, I loved being able to always listen to him, and, and I like to reminisce sometimes about what it was like covering them that season. Because I think Tom Coughlin and what we what we're seeing him do now in Jacksonville. Look, since he's been there, I mean, he the guy. Just It's not just what he does from his football knowledge. This is a guy who just is a leader of men. And I just really enjoy following him, listening to his words. Um, and, and if you want to hear some of those reminiscences, again, you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Archino. But, uh, yeah, always really fun. And then I'm a big soccer guy, too, the other kind of football. Uh, I love to cover that, too. So if you do enjoy that kind of football, too, it's a good place to go. Yeah, no, I know. I had your co-host for the soccer showdown, Martina Pucci, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the World Cup then. So any quick thoughts on the World Cup, how it ended? Yeah, that's a good one. My picks towards the end were not great. You know, I started off really well with my picks in the World Cup and the back end weren't so great. Uh, I didn't think the final game was great. I was, of course, I wanted Croatia. I wanted the underdog there. And it was a great first half, not a great second half. Uh, but but France really did have a remarkable run. I mean, they are just loaded with talent. They're going to be so good for so many years now. And uh, I think the good thing about the World Cup is, you know, it, the U.S., a lot of people are so disappointed they weren't in it this time around. But the good thing and the thing that I, I alluded to and I wrote a lot about this is there will be more World Cups. We saw Christian Pulisic talk about it, too, is, you know, this isn't the end of the world. They'll be back. It was disappointing. But Team USA will be back, and uh, hopefully by the next one, things will be um, a little bit better. All right. Thanks for the time, Joe. Oh, thank you. That's it was jo a great time. All right. That was Joe Arquino on the Giants. Follow him on Twitter at Joe Arquino. Stay tuned for the two-minute drill while I tell you about my opinion on the legacy of Darrell Revis now that he's retiring as a member of the Jets right after this.
All right, and we're back with today's two-minute drill. Now, one of the big storylines over the weekend that came out was that former All-Pro corner Darrell Revis announced his retirement. Revis is going to retire on Tuesday as a member of the Jets. He that drafted him in 2007 where he spent, I believe, six of his nine-year pro career. Revis, while incredibly talented, has always been known for his ability to maximize his abilities financially off the field. Staging multiple holdouts, getting himself traded off the Jets, and he, they weren't going to pay him enough. And that's a whole other mistake. The Jets should never have traded him in 2013. But that's besides the point right now. What's important to remember is that Revis was one of the most dominant players in the league for, for a solid four or five years. In an era that was defined by passing, in which the quarterback and the passing game took over the league, Revis was a true shutdown corner when none really existed. Let me give you some stats from Pro Football Focus for his incredible 2009 season, when he should have won Defensive Player of the Year, but was robbed by all the voters he gave to Charles Woodson for some reason. That year, he was targeted 111 times, gave up only 41 catches, which is the fewest of any corner targeted 80-plus times. He gave up only 425 yards in the year, which is the fewest of any corner 70-plus targets. Recorded six interceptions, which is third among corners that year. And had 23 passes defensed, which is seven more than any other player in the league. And the Jets had a brutal schedule that year. They saw tons of number one receivers. Andre Johnson, Terrell Owens, Chad Johnson, you name it. Revis shut them down. I got some more great stats for, about him, courtesy of Peter King's Football Morning in America column. Between 2009 and 2011, quarterbacks threw at Darrell Revis 253 times. Revis allowed only six touchdowns and a 38.7 completion percentage over that span. That's over a three-year period. He allowed only six touchdowns and he had 38.7% completion percentage. That's absurd. Here are pro football focuses top corners the past three years and their completion percentage is allowed. 2015, Tyron Matthew, he had 54.9% completion percentage. 2016, Brent Grimes, 60.7%. 2017, Casey Hayward, 42.7%. Those were all just one year for their best-rated corner in the league. Darrell Revis gave 38.7% completions over three years. That's incredible. Simply put, even though he has a mixed legacy because of the money, the fact he went on to become a mercenary a little bit, playing for Tampa, winning the ring in New England, and playing in Kansas City, and being forgetful in Kansas City, the fact is that Darrell Revis is one of the greatest Jets to ever wear the uniform. He should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. He should have his name in the ring of honor as soon as possible. And he's still one of the best players I've ever seen play for the Jets. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Joe Arquinha, for stopping by to talk Giants football. If you want to get more good stuff like this podcast, be sure to check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-331. And feel free to tweet with the hashtag leader of men if you made it to the end of the show. Coming up next week, we'll talk about the ramifications of the trade deadline, how it will impact both of the local teams. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Mets fans.